This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It is time for our semi-monthly chat with the man with the best voice in all of radio. A man who knows more about space and can explain it in terms that even simpleton like me can understand. And a man who uh, has a keen sense of humor and an even keener sense of curiosity about what goes on in the night sky. It is time once again for... The Infinite Side of Midnight, where we chat for one hour with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. Also a podcaster, and you could hear his terrific podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, wherever podcasts are available, or just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search Dr. Sky. Steve, it has been a long two weeks. A lot has gone on in these last two weeks. It's great to talk to you again. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be back with you here on, as we call it now, the infinite side of midnight, as we welcome all the listeners out there on this early Wednesday morning. It's good to be back. Steve, I I don't know. uh, I mean, I'm guessing your hours are a little bit more conventional than mine uh, because you're out (laughs) there in Arizona where it's a little earlier than it is in New York and because your day may wrap up a little bit earlier than mine does. But when I wake up in the middle of the afternoon, basically it's an immediate rush for me to figure out what has gone on since I went to sleep. And often, especially these days, there's quite a bit. And uh, a week or two ago, uh, I think it was a day after you and I had spoken and you had explained the significance of this Elon Musk uh, SpaceX Starship launch, I heard from Lorraine, my son's babysitter, uh, the, the SpaceX Starship blew up. And then I'm rushing to get more information. And then the more information that I get, I'm finding out, at least from some quarters, that they're saying even though the Starship blew up, which is something that we weren't hearing from anybody the day before, that it was a successful launch. Set us straight here, Steve. What exactly happened? Why did this this Starship blow up as far as we know? And what are people meaning when they say that, that even though it blew up, that it was a success. Well, let's start with the success part of it first. Elon Musk had stated many times before, categorically, that just to get the rocket past the Megazilla launch tower, in his words, would be pretty much a success. But when people watch it on television, it looks like we're going back to the early 1960s, when America had so many failures as we got the, even the little Redstone rocket, the one that Alan Shepard went up in May of 1961. But what's interesting about this particular launch, it's amazing that they even got FAA approval because there's so much on the environmental side. Now they're, of course, canceled until further notice, and they have a lot to do. But as we saw that massive stack of rocket, the big booster, the R-5, which is about 230 feet tall, on top of it, the beautiful stainless steel Starship, it all looked good. But we saw this incredible cloud of debris, and that's the problematic part. Because, Frank, the engines on this particular uh, spacecraft, they're called Raptor engines. They use a new technology, or actually it's not totally new, a combination of using liquid oxygen and liquid methane. And these engines are known as Raptor engines. 
So on the base plate at the bottom of the rocket, there's 33 of these particular rocket engines that in all estimation have over 510,000 pounds of thrust, still making this the most powerful rocket in the world. Estimation's about 16 million pounds of thrust. Even Artemis had about 8.8 million pounds of thrust, or maybe more. So we see the rocket <clears throat> excuse me, go up through the stack, and then we notice at the bottom there seems to be, whoa, hold on, folks, there's an area where there's not engines that are lit. What caused that? Well, unfortunately, at the very bottom of that launch tower, they put a special coating of what they call like a concrete, a more advanced form of that, to think that it would, of course, take the heat and blast, but not so. A lot of that material, Frank, was shot back up into the engines. And if you take a look at some of the NASA, excuse me, the SpaceX, you know, video footage, you see a few cars that are even there getting pummeled by big chunks of concrete. You and I wouldn't want to be standing there. So the rocket starts to move up, and then about 30 seconds into the flight, they start to notice that as ground control that some of the hydraulic systems and power on these motors or rocket motors are failing, probably due to what? The bell cones at the bottom were hit. Some of that debris went up into the rocket motors. Now, here's an interesting point. I'll make it brief. For every loss of each engine, you're losing 9% of the thrust of the whole total rocket. So what do we see next? We see the rocket go up, this incredible cloud of dust like we have in Arizona when we have these monsoon storms like a haboob, all that dust, but we don't get concrete. It gets up as it moves higher up into the sky. The highest it got was 127,000 feet. But then it starts to do four loops in the sky, which is not what it's supposed to do. And a rocket, to make it real quick, it goes through a dynamic pressure thing called max Q. What's that? That's the maximum pressure that's on the airframe or the rocket frame so it doesn't, you know, fall apart. Well, this rocket had two max Qs. It had one going up, and then it had a one as it started to tumble and go back down. So simply, what did ground control have to do? And this wasn't really reported until later on. They had to do with what they call use the flight termination system. And even that, how about this, folks? This is even a new revelation, Frank. It took 40 seconds after they so-called pushed the red button and nobody knows why, so there was a big delay. But thank God the rocket didn't just come tumbling back into that, you know, habitated area, but it could have if things had gone a little mm. bit uh, more haywire. Amazing stuff. Uh, it certainly is. By the way, if people have questions, let me give the phone number, and we'll uh, take as many as we can get to throughout the hour, 800-848-9222. That 800, that's 800-848-9222, whatever your questions are for uh, Dr. Sky. You alluded to the FAA. Apparently yeah. there's now some environmental and cultural heritage groups that filed a lawsuit this yeah. week against the FAA saying... It didn't perform a thorough enough environmental review of SpaceX's uh, Starship program. So when the Starship took flight on April 20th, the ignition of the super heavy rocket shattered parts of its launch pad all over Texas and scattered debris for miles around the launch site. What are they saying that the FAA didn't do, that it should have done? And what does this portend for future Starship launches? Well, to cut to the chase, Frank, I think what originally Elon Musk, and I gather, this is what I think happened. I mean, I don't know it absolutely, but from reading into this for a long time since our last broadcast, in his proposal, they had an area of 700 acres that they would consider to be what they called that area where you don't want to go, and they could have, obviously, and I think there was even a couple of small fires that were set on the ground. So I think, and again, I'm not sure of this because I'm not an attorney, but looking into this deeper, which I will, of course, to our next broadcast, we're finding out that that alone could have caused a lot of consternation and a lot of problems. That, in other words, the blast area of that was larger than the 700 acres that they put in their proposal. So gathering what we read here, it looks like the FAA threw a lot of other things that they had to do. I believe they even had, and I think SpaceX did a pretty good job on this initially, they even had to have an environmental person, you know, involved in looking at the damage that this rocket might cause from its motors to, you know, marine life and things like that. But one of the things that's absolute in there, there was a mandate from the FAA saying, how about this? No rocket launches on weekends when people are at the shore. Mm. So <laughs> it continues. I, I kind of feel for, for SpaceX, too, and especially I feel for people. Some people describe this as a chest, rock, you know, rocking roar right in their chest. You know, the whole thing was like an earthquake. But you have to remember, this is the most powerful rocket ever launched on the Earth. 
And just as a quick sideline, this goes back into history. In 1969, the Russians, of course, were trying to beat us to the moon. Why didn't they get there? They had a rocket. People should look this up. We don't like to give homework on the program, but this is a good one. Look up the Russian or Soviet N-1, simple number, letter N-1 rocket. It also had a display. It looked like the architecture was kind of like this rocket, but it had more stages than what Elon Musk's rocket had. But on the bottom, Frank, it had a multitude of engines. Well, that's not the problem. On one of these particular launches, I believe, they had a serious accident. What happened is 100 space scientists, like all the ground crew, was very close to the rocket. Well, not literally, literally under it. But what happened on launch attempt, that entire rocket exploded, killing over 100 people. Their mission to the moon, as far as a manned mission to the moon, pretty much ended. But if you look at the technology of the N1, it didn't use the same propellants. But just to go into history, it also is kind of ironic that Elon Musk has a really good design here with these Raptors. Now what they have to do is figure a way that they can tame these rocket motors. But here's the real problem, quickly. On most of the rocket launches, like the Saturn Vs, you noticed if you look closely at the launch that there was this gigantic water ablation system, in simple English, that they flooded this entire chasm underneath the rocket pad with water for two reasons, to mitigate the damage, mitigate the sound. But on this particular rocket launch, Elon Musk didn't use that. They depended on partially some, what I gather to be, you know, very structurally sound concrete of some type. They have a special name for it. But imagine standing anywhere near that rocket. Of course, it wouldn't. But that would be like hell on Earth because the power of that rocket, look what it did. It created a gigantic crater at the very bottom. But sadly, you know, what we saw, Elon Musk knew this ahead of time. There was a really good chance. But how about this? It's like a $3 billion firecracker or wow. flamethrower going up into the daytime sky. So just to reiterate my question then, and, you know, I was talking with uh, Colonel Eileen Collins last week, who you may have interviewed before. Absolutely. uh, She's uh, really, I got quite an education in talking to her for for people that didn't hear that interview. She's the first woman ever to command a uh, a space mission. And she was very optimistic about Mm -hmm. the future of SpaceX working in conjunction with government space agencies like NASA. What do you see, given what happened with this with this launch and now what's happening with the FAA as they do sort of the autopsy of this explosion? What do you see as the future of Starship and as it relates to possible work with NASA and other space agencies? Well, Frank, they know they have to get it right. So I don't know the exact percentages, but I'm hearing that there's probably an 80 percent chance that they'll get this right on the next launch. I mean, again, when I say 80 percent, that's not 100 but 100% in the year 2024. But right now, since the FAA has grounded them, they have to go back to the basics and look at the way that that launch pad can be strengthened and some of the issues with the engines. Because inside that core of 33, I don't know the exact which ones that do this, but inside that core of rocket motors, some of them have the capability to simply move back and forth called gimbling. And what that's ne- what's necessary for that on a rocket is you have to be able to pitch it to a degree so that it stays on the flight path. And without that capability, obviously some of those chunks of concrete and other material either got in and destroyed some mm. of those engines. But they're extremely powerful. But in simple analysis, Frank, I believe it's very positive for SpaceX. But this is going to take time, and people just need to go back. No apologies for SpaceX. I think they're doing overall an amazing job from a guy that started off with virtually what? No, no rocket science background. Right. That's what's even amazing to me. How can somebody even think of this stuff? And he's the leader of the pack. So I think it's promising, but it's going to take time to get it right. And maybe those schedules have to be slowed down to make the thing work properly. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Uh, Neil, what was your question? Yeah, you know, Doc, I, I know my friend Frank here uh, would love to go up in the rocket uh, into space. <laughs> But to be honest with you, uh, I, I can't trust it. I mean, you know, the the amount of scrutiny before they send the rocket up it has to be incredible. And yet yes. it still blew up. So Absolutely, Neil. Yeah. I'm wondering, is it possible that the Russians or the Chinese are better equipped scientifically to send the rocket up than we are? Well, the Russians, let's go to the Russians. They have some great experience with their rocket launches, and they've also, as I mentioned before, have some amazing disasters. But going back, Neil, first of all, good morning. We have to look at the Chinese space program. And I don't know for a fact, but I'm just saying this pretty much as a generalist on the question. 
that the Chinese don't always give us the information on their rocket disasters, but they have done, I think, a very good job here, particularly in one area. As we look at lower Earth orbit, Neil, they're looking at, they already have constructed this Tiangong space station in record time. They've created some amazing launch vehicles that they use to get, you know, objects up into space. But I think the future, as we were talking with Frank before, I think it looks pretty promising. I wouldn't want to go up on that rocket right now, and that's why there was no humans, animals, or anything that's living. They have to get this right. But see, here's the difference between Quickly Neil in, in this particular time period. Back in the early 1960s, we didn't have the media out there from social media, television, and all the available streams. So basically, they had a lot of disasters. They were recorded by a select group of people. But now everybody knows everything pretty much about the space program. But the true thing is, yes, Russia and China have also made some great strides, and they've also had their setbacks. Thank you, Neil. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, uh, we're also seeing uh, a great deal of news about uh, this, uh, the possibility, since Neil brought this up, alluding to Russia, and then you mentioned what's happening with, with China, the possibility of modern warfare taking place not in the ground, not through World War I-style trenches or even more modern-style guerrilla warfare or through acts of uh, terrorism, but through space. What are yes. the great fears and or the great opportunities for warfare between spacefaring countries? Well, let's start off with the whole space industry. We know that the calculations show that the whole space industry, military and privatized and the NASA side, is worth $464 billion a year, and it could move on to a trillion by 2040. But here's what's interesting. The Space Force, thank goodness President Trump decided to move forward on this because the inevitability is, I don't like it, that we're going to be a space-faring nation or space warfare will eventually, or if it hasn't already happened, Because the Chinese apparently have that capability, as Neil was asking me about the difference and successes of the great strides that Russia and China's made. There are Soviet spacecraft, or now Russian spacecraft, I should say, more accurately, that, accordingly to science and and science experts, have the capability of coming up near a satellite, having an arm out there that can either disable something. China also has the capability of doing what they call cyberspace warfare, where they can actually apparently shut down some of our very important satellites. But here's the big difference. The Chinese use less expensive satellites on a more multiplicative side, while we use less of those spacecraft at a higher dollar value. So the problematic thing is anything that attacks those big assets, let's say we're looking at a global war. Let's say we're talking about us defending Taiwan in an invasion of full force from the uh, Chinese communists. The probability is you could theoretically, what, wipe out our GPS? Right since everything's electronic. But I think it's a big concern. Thank goodness Space Force, they're not telling us everything out there, what they have. But we put up a lot of birds, as they call it, up into space, just hoping that we keep up. I don't like the idea of war in space, but if you look at what? The the whole concept of every time I went to uh, watch a Star Wars movie, what was the whole presence or the whole premise? They had space warfare going on on an intergalactic scale. Sad to say, I think it's going to happen. Not that we like it. The uh, Well, we talked about Russia, talked about China. One of the countries that uh, got a lot of attention, not necessarily in a positive manner, for what they're doing in terms of space exploration is Japan. And a Japanese lunar lander carrying a rover developed in the United Arab Emirates, attempting to find its footing on the moon's surface last week and potentially mark the world's first lunar landing on a commercially developed aircraft or spacecraft. But it apparently didn't go so well. What exactly happened? What went wrong? Well, the Haikudo R mission was built by a Tokyo-based company, I should say, called iSpace. And it's one of the missions that we didn't really hear about because it launched late in 2022. And we have to go back to the whole purpose here. Google's Lunar X Prize was something that they set forth a long time ago, saying that if a company, a privatized company, not NASA, can develop a lunar lander, Out of it comes a little rover, and you transmit information back to us, whether it's in 4K, 8K, or basically good video, there'd be a $20 million prize, but nobody won it. So this particular company, iSpace, developed this little tiny lander, this little lander with a little rover inside called Hakuto-R. In Japanese, 
Hakuto refers to a white rabbit in which many of the mythologies in Japan and stories, they're beautiful stories. They believe there's a white rabbit that runs around on the surface of the moon. But in the time allowed, what happened is the spacecraft and their mission control is watching the descent on this. And now everybody's all excited because it's just moments away when you're going to get a confirmation that the little sensors that stick out like little needles, let's say, on the bottom of the landing legs initiate the little you know, procedure where they say, yep, contact, like the lunar lander at the Apollos. Didn't happen. So one of the theories is it either ran out of fuel. And remember, the surface of the moon, you have one-sixth gravity. So even if you ran out of fuel, it would have come down, maybe bounced and flipped over, and all the electronics could have been fried or just offline. Or the opposite thing could have happened, where the thruster was on the on position, and that was said, if it happened, it just crashed into the moon. But it went to an interesting crater in the northern part of the moon. I watched this area of the moon through the telescope, maybe some of the listeners do. It's an area near a sea called Mare Frigoris, meaning the Sea of Cold, and it's a crater called Atlas. And I find that interesting, Frank, that they even have the ability to even try to land inside this large crater, maybe 30, 40 miles in diameter. But it's kind of sad because I would always think, and, and I wish that we could just do this, you, me, and the listeners, get a little company out there to send a rover to, or a little lander to the moon. Let's land by the Apollo landing site for Apollo 11, where the descent module is, and actually show video in HK or, I mean, 4K, 8K, and show us exactly what's there to dispel. I'm sure there'd be still people that would say, well, that's been either faked or whatever. But wouldn't that be fascinating? And that was the whole purpose behind this whole lunar and you know Google Lunar X Prize. But sad to say that uh, that little mission, who knows? Maybe it's still ticking away. Maybe its batteries ran out. But they tried. And it's an interesting mission from privatized space companies. All right. Uh, we're going to continue with your calls, your questions for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you have questions related to space, if you have questions related to what you'll be able to see in the night sky, either with the naked eye or with the aid of some binoculars in the coming weeks and months, if you have questions about aviation or anything in those uh, realms, now's the time to ask them and get your curiosity satiated. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'm Frank Moreno, and as we do every two weeks this hour, you are listening to The Infinite Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space. On such a timeless flight. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. 
till touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. No, 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 no. I'm a rocket man. Ah, the great William Shatner singing his version of Rocket Man as only he can. This is from his album. This is not the original version of Rocket Man, which so often gets shared on YouTube and played all over the place. This is actually from a concept album that he did called Searching for Major Tom. And a lot of you have heard that song, you know, about Major Tom. And this album seeks to answer the question, what became of Major Tom? After that rocket launch, what happened to him? And all the songs that Shatner does, including this one, they fit into that story of answering that question of what happened to Major Tom. Well, we have our rocket man with us today, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, uh, a man who is a veteran broadcaster and edutainer. He's the host of the Dr. Sky Experience podcast, which you could listen to at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. You can also just search the Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app and we'll, we'll get, get, you'll be able to find it. There's some great content on there in terms of both commentary and some terrific interviews as well. We're going to take your calls in just a moment. If you have questions about anything happening in space, 800-848-9222. But Steve, before we get to callers' questions, uh, there's a question that I got on Friday uh, during the Ask Frank Anything portion of the program that perhaps I think is better suited for you. This is what Jacqueline from Brooklyn asked uh, just a few days ago. Listen to this. Do you know if Dr. Sky is married? That was the question. I'll, I'll repeat it for you. Do you know if Dr. Sky is married? So uh, I, uh, I answered that question the best that I could, but I'll, I'll defer to you, sir. Well, no, not at the present time, but I've had a number of marriages in my life, but... Uh, I don't know. I hope this one, if we proceed as we're hoping, uh, is the final one for the time I'm alive here. So the answer is no, not at this moment. All right. All right. Uh, there you have it. All right. Uh, there was some disturbing news about the future of the Milky Way uh, galaxy, which is the galaxy that I enjoy living in and would love to see not destroyed, that there could be some sort of a destructive force created within the Milky Way, which could actually destroy this galaxy. I did take some solace in the fact that it probably won't happen for a couple of billion years. But w- what is this? What, w- how, how concerned should people be about uh, having their heirs make their arrangements? <laughs> well, why worry is really the bottom line here. But science is always talking about these mega things, and here we go. First of all, we have to define the object that we're talking about that could be a problem in the Milky Way. That's the quasar. Now, I remember when I was a young child living in New York City, we had television commercials that were all over the country of quasar televisions. Well, we're talking about something different here. What is it? It's an object in space that's the most powerful and one of the brightest things in the universe. It's probably caused by these two obviously supermassive black holes either colliding or galaxies that collide. And the power, Frank, that comes out of these, it's incredible. So the theory states that there's probably about, in all galaxies, 65% of all galaxies may have quasars in the center. But the nearest quasar, think about this, the most powerful sources that we know of, or just about in the universe, are about some 2.4 billion light years away from us. And one of them that people could actually see in a rather large to moderate-sized telescope on a super dark night is called 3C273. So what about that? Astronomers say that there's one maybe 600 million light years away called Markarian 231. What does it have to do with us? But if one of those were to pop up in the core of our galaxy, remember, those numbers I just gave you are just, without you know saying it too much, astronomical, no pun intended. Our, our nucleus, the nucleus of the Milky Way, is only 27,000 light years away from us. So if we had one of those take place in our galactic center, and it shines as bright as it does, it would kill star formation. Mm. And guess what? We're we're attached to a star. Now think about this. 3C273, if it's 2.4 billion light years away, let's move it to 32 light years away from the sun. Frank, it would shine brighter than the sun in our sky, and that's only 32 light years away. But this amazing power that's coming out of these things, it's just literally off the charts. I mean, it has more power coming out of that particular object than, let's say, 
maybe the entire Milky Way times 10, if you collectively took all the stars and squeezed them in and pushed out that energy that's in there. That's something that no human mind can comprehend, but that's why they pay those physicists and astrophysicists probably the big bucks to talk about it. But you're right, nothing to worry about in our lifetime. But if it were to come into the nucleus of the Milky Way, that could be an issue. Who knows? 800-848-9222. Let us say hello to Keith in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hello, Keith. Hi, how you doing, guys? Great. Good morning, uh, Keith. Hi. The reason I'm calling is about another exoplanet. Okay. Uh, recently, the Webb Telescope has discovered a planet 23 light years from the Earth that is about a third bigger than the size of the Earth that right. uh, has water vapor in its atmosphere. Absolutely. Uh, what more do you know about this planet? Pretty much the same, Keith. Good morning. I mean, it's an object that we're detecting with James Webb, a long list of objects that are coming through that we've never had uh, seen before. But if this is the case, and it's triply verified, you know, not just once but twice, that could give us the first indication that hopefully the temperatures on an object like that, since there's water vapor, it must be in what we call the habitable zone. Because a lot of these stars, of course, whether they're red dwarfs, either don't have enough energy to sustain what we call life here like we have on the Earth, or if you go out into the areas where the stars are much larger, I think that's a great revelation. But it still needs, like we talked about the rocket, still needs more time for verification. One of the very first, but unfortunately, Keith, all these different exoplanets we're finding out, thousands of them around stars, 30, 40 years ago, they would have thought we're nuts talking about planets outside the solar system. Most are too big, too hot, and some have just like a lava entire atmosphere, which temperatures are worse than Venus. So let's hope it uh, gets more verification for water vapor and maybe life. Steve, a lot was made about different events happening on May 1st. A lot of people mentioned the fact that it was International Workers' Day. A lot of people mentioned sure. the fact that it was the beginning of National Pet Month. A lot of people mentioned the fact that it was uh, National Torch Day. But one uh, mar one anniversary that I have to confess uh, slipped my mind was that it was one of the 63rd it was the 63rd anniversary of one of the most noteworthy events that happened at the height of the Cold War, an event that had the potential to be a, uh, a big problem if it was handled poorly by both American and Soviet leaders. And that's the story of Francis Powers yes. being shot down over the Soviet Union 63 years ago today. Having had six decades to reflect back on that through the prism of history, what can you tell us about that U-2 Francis Powers incident from May 1st, 1960? Gladly. Uh, the Dr. Sky Brand, of course, talks about aviation. And fortunately, over the years, Frank, I've had interviews with Sergei Khrushchev, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, and actually a roommate of Francis Gary Powers, a guy named Tony Bavacqua, who also was a U-2 pilot. So this is what I learned. This particular incident that happened, like we talked about 63 years ago, this gentleman was flying a U-2C aircraft, which is one of those skunkwork aircrafts that was developed by you know, Ben Rich and the entire team of Kelly Johnson that later developed the a A-12s and SR-71s. Well, the short story on this is that particular aircraft on a mission known as Grand Slam or Operation Grand Slam, excuse me, the aircraft was flown by another pilot from an Air Force base in Turkey. A good friend of mine was stationed in a place called Injurlik in Turkey. They allegedly, they did fly this U-2, U-2C, that version, from that area in Turkey to Pakistan because it was closer for this clandestine mission, which, of course, the Americans denied and said it was just a weather observation aircraft. But the capability of the U-2C, allegedly up to 80,000 feet. Now, the Chinese spy balloon that we've just been hearing about, our U-2Rs, like the long iteration, you go from letter C all the way up to R, a more advanced version now was actually watching that. But what happened with Francis Gary Powers, apparently, is he's flying over these two areas and taking pictures. One was the Baikonur Space Center, where Russia had at the time not only many of its launches, but also its ICBM site. And they didn't have many rockets. Sergei Khrushchev told me that his father revealed that America was actually so, you know, paranoid that they had more ICBMs than the United States when he revealed to me that they only had probably four or five actual rockets at the time. But we, of course, were spying on it. And also they flew over an area called Chelyabin 65. What was that? 
That was a plutonium manufacturing plant. So here goes the rest of the story. Allegedly, as he's flying the aircraft, a Soviet SA-2 missile actually supposedly doesn't hit his aircraft, but explodes near it, tearing off one of the wings. He bails and comes down. Now, on board that mission, which was CIA-related, there was this story about a thing called a silver dollar, where if captured, he was supposed to inject himself with a poison needle with a toxin called saxitoxin. It's one of these shellfish toxins. Not, well, not, not scaring people if you eat oysters and clams, <laughs> but it's some kind of a derivative that comes out of that. So all this became big news. Sergei said, you know, my father paraded the, the, the pilot in front of the wreckage. This was a total disaster for the United States with Eisenhower. And they, of course, and Khrushchev, he said his father actually caught us in a lie. He found out that we were doing a, you know, a spy mission, which they figured out. We were saying it was a weather reconnaissance mission. But what did they do? They actually traded for this particular pilot, Francis Gary Powers. They traded Rudolf Abel and I believe another person in a trade. But here's the sad story. This is really strange. Not most people, people don't really know this or they haven't been up to date on it. He later, once released, was flying a television helicopter for, I think, one of the NBC affiliates in Los Angeles. When you say he, Francis Powers? Francis or just, Powers, okay. yeah. He was flying a helicopter as like one of those traffic reporters. And the, car- the video guy or the cameraman in the back with him on August 1st, 1977. Now, this is really strange. He's a seasoned pilot who flew a U-2 and so many thousands of hours in the air. Allegedly, the, the story goes that he looks at his fuel gauge and he starts to report that he's got low fuel. Well, the fuel gauge apparently was either sabotaged or obviously it didn't work. You pick one you like, folks. But his helicopter crashed, sadly, and both of them died in a very strange experience back in 1977. But the whole story is still like one of these big stories that you could talk about and go, why didn't he use the poison needle? What really happened? And then there's another bizarre you know, conspiracy theory out there. I don't buy it. But that the plane was actually sabotaged and an explosive charge was put into wow. the aircraft, so it blew up. But the facts are, I mean, I'm going to try to talk facts here and what we know, and obviously if I don't know, I'll be honest with the audience too, is that that story is cra- amazing because for years we would visit Tony Bavacqua. Who's Tony? He's just a good old guy who retired and loves Corvettes, and you could sit and talk to Tony for hours. He said Francis and I were roommates. I knew him very well. He was a great pilot. He was selected you know, for these particular missions. But guess who's involved in this mission very heavily? Just like the A-12s, which we had a lot of friends with those pilots who flew the first iteration before the SR-71 of the A-12 uh, aircraft built by the Lockheed Skunk Works. So it's kind of a fascinating story, but uh, a very sad day, as we call May Day 63 years ago, a story that, uh, as I was a young boy, I wasn't available to understand it, but uh, many people don't even know about that. It was uh, we, we could have gone to a higher level of DEFCON or even nuclear war over something like this. Who knows? Yeah, it really does give you an appreciation for the steady hand of Eisenhower's leadership. Uh, because sure. if you think of someone that had handled that a little bit more recklessly, then it is no telling where that escalation could have led to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you have a question for Dr. Sky, 800-848-9222. Rich is listening on WCBM in... Baltimore. Hello, Rich. How you doing? Good. Hey, good morning, Rich. Yeah, do you think there is a, uh, uh, we hear about the the uh, beginning and the end of the universe. Do you yes. think there's an end to the universe? I think there is. I don't know when it's going to happen, but if you look at this, Rich, it's an excellent question. Even the great minds in cosmology, the people who study this whole, you know, creation of the universe, not from the religious and philosophy side, we know that the universe is constantly expanding. And I think I've mentioned it, Frank, on the show before, a long, long time ago. What we think we know, if you take the universe as expanding, and I'm going to pretend that it's a big bubble there, Rich, they're saying that on either side, it's probably about 40 to 50 billion light years out on its end. If you take the whole circle, it's like, what, 90, 90 plus some billion light years. But the truth of the matter is, what's it expanding into? And that's the biggest conundrum that I think we have right now in the story of cosmology. But uh, that's probably the best answer that anybody's going to give us here. 
at least at this hour in the morning, right, Frank? That's uh, hey, if you, if that's the best answer you've got, that's the best answer this show has. Well, we're gonna take we're gonna uh, take more of your questions in just a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Steve Cates, aka Doctor Sky, is here. This is the infinite side of midnight, analyzing what's happening in space and in the sky in general. Now, I don't know that there are many greater mysteries than the end of the universe, as Rich just brought up, but there is a mystery that a lot of people have been wondering about for years now, and the interest in it has been renewed because of a very popular Netflix series that looks into it. We're going to get into this mystery with Dr. Sky straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. A.K.A. Dr. Sky, noted edutainer and broadcaster, joining us for the hour. We're going to get back to your questions in a moment, 800-848-9222. But nine years ago, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 vanished. At least that's what it appears. Uh, Planes crash, planes uh, get hijacked, but they usually don't simply vanish. Now, interest in this has been renewed by this Netflix documentary. Uh, It's called MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. And even though it's nine years later, more people than ever are asking, what became of MH370? Steve, uh, what do we know, what are we learning nine years later about the disappearance of MH370? Well, it's one of the greatest mysteries other than Amelia Earhart. And this goes back to March 8, 2014, in case people didn't you know, pay attention at the time or no fault of their own. 239 souls on board a 777 from Malaysia Airlines, as we know, a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Supposed to be a simple, ordinary flight. The last contact with the aircraft was some 38 minutes into the flight. No distress signal from MH370. What the heck is some of the theories about what, have ha- what might have happened? Well, it all goes back to Captain Shah. It's alleged, now we can't prove it, but this is what many people are speculating. One of the best theories going on here is that he locked the co-pilot out, and then what he did was he put on his own oxygen system, and any of the pilots out there know, I'm not one who flies you know, commercial aircraft, but we know from flying on them, they obviously have their own personal air, you know, oxygen systems in there in the event of a decompression. But what this pilot might have done is decompress the entire internal part of the aircraft, causing obviously what? Hypoxia, and the passengers either slowly died or what have you. This is very strange. And also, it's to be noted, and I mentioned this with uh, John Katsimatidis on one of the weekend shows on Cat's Roundtable, that also this aircraft contained a heavy number or a a large number, that is, of lithium batteries on board this aircraft flying to Beijing. Now, not to alarm people, because we're hearing more about these lithium batteries causing fires And who knows, maybe that was also an indication of something that brought the airplane down. But let's talk about where this aircraft went. It was heading from Kuala Lumpur, heading up toward Beijing. It makes this interesting turn and heads down into deep, and this is what I'm talking in a quick time here. It heads down deep into the southern Indian Ocean, where allegedly the pilot either ditched the airplane or the plane just ran out of fuel. Now, 33 pieces are thought to have been found from this particular aircraft to date, but only three confirmed. 
So we know three pieces of that aircraft have allegedly been confirmed. 33 other pieces of an aircraft are supposedly from that particular MH370. Now, we had years ago, Howard Hughes, the genius that he was, of course, he had this uh, ship called the Glomar Explorer. I once saw it when I was driving through the San Francisco Bay Area, just sitting there. What's so important about that? It was one of these ships that was kind of like disguised. It looked like a freighter, but inside of it, it had this capability to pull up Soviet subs or things on the bottom of the ocean. Well, I don't think we have the Glomar Explorer anymore, but supposedly any of that debris would be thousands of feet down on the ocean floor. I don't think anybody's done any deep dives over there to actually prove it. But isn't that amazing, Frank? All these theories we still don't know, but I feel so bad, of course, for anybody on that particular aircraft, uh, which goes into history as one of the great unsolved aviation stories, other than Amelia Earhart and a few others. Absolutely. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Jack is in Queens. Hello, Jack. Hello. This is John O'Malley. I'm a student of Steve Case from 1977. Wow. There you go, my friend. How are you this morning? I, I was in your Hackensack High School astronomy class in 77 we formed the cosmic awareness uh, club we <laughs> that's amazing we jack what kind of grade I, did he give well. you what kind of grade did he give you jack? <laughs> there were no grades we just learned i learned about ulug beg the great uh timurid uh, astronomer that's Prince. my kind of class i love it i know yeah, we we're all happy learned, in those days I, I, I got into arabic and persian because of uh steve cates oh wow well, well it's good right. to hear from you my friend things. you know when you mentioned the uh uh, the uh, U-2 flight in 1960, I was born in 61. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, apparently, Lee Harvey Oswald was at the Atsuga Air Force Base in Japan, and he might have leaked stuff. We don't know about Oswald. He was a patsy, but he might have given information to the Soviets to, to shoot down the uh, Francis Gary Powers uh, thing from Injirlik to wow. Pakistan over Russia. So there's the Lee Harvey Oswald thing. Now, the atomic bomb was, uh, you know, Trinity... July 16th, 1945, then Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, a few years later, we start to get these UFO things. Do you think aliens may have uh, seen the uh, atomic bomb and then uh, maybe intervened? Now, well, Jack, yeah, it's good another... to talk with you from all these years. God bless you, my friend. We yeah. had great days. I've, I've been with you. I've been with you since <laughs> 1977. I took your course on astronomy in Hackensack High oh, School. Yeah. You taught it for free. You gave to the people. Wow. Oh, you're a good man for saying that. Thank you. But to go back to the question here and the answer that is to this, in my opinion, I believe very strongly, Frank, this is interesting, and I think the listeners will find this very interesting. July 16th, 1945, we detonate the uh, Trinity bomb, which is the first big uranium uranium gadget. Ever since that time, what happened afterwards, a couple of years later, that site of that explosion Who knows? Maybe there was an extraterrestrial connection because, guess what? Roswell occurred. And a few other strange material uh, sightings, or I should say actual sightings, or maybe crashes. It wasn't just Roswell. There was the one at Corona, which is in New Mexico. So maybe it leads credence, right, Jack, to the fact that because of that flash that we obviously had, and the ones that, of course, occurred with the two nuclear explosions in Japan, sadly, that maybe that was some sort of signal but now many people are saying, Jack and, and Frank, that, and to the listeners, that any of this extraterrestrial activity, there may be one reason here. Avi Loeb of Harvard says this, along with some other serious scientists, that maybe that extraterrestrial connection is all due to the fact that we have water on this planet, and that's the most sought-after sought commodity. I mean, we may think gold and platinum and palladium are important, but to some you know, civilizations, any place that has water, but the nuclear component of seeing a flash might have brought some attention to those that are out in the realm. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Jack. Hey, let me ask you, uh, since we're rapidly approaching the end of our hour together, a lot of people look to you for guidance on what they can look to in the night sky, either just by looking up or with binoculars. Uh, What's coming up next day, week, month, two months that people should be excited about and keep an eye out, maybe even two eyes? Great question, Frank. The moon moves on to its full phase. It's a beautiful full moon. These are Native American names for most of the full moons here in America and in North America. This comes up later in the week. On the morning of the 5th and the 6th, we'll get to see them, particularly on the morning of the 5th, we'll get to see the full flower moon, a beautiful name. 
Out here, the temperatures in Arizona got to 102. Most of my flowers have already melted. But for other parts of the nation in North America, it's a flower season. Also, coincidentally, not to get too, too, much, too excited, the Ada Aquarid meteor shower peaks on the morning of the 6th. You look in the southeast, even though the full moon will be out in the sky, you may get to see upwards of maybe five, maybe even less meteors an hour. If you see one, you're lucky. It's all debris from Comet Halley, obviously what we call mankind's comet. And I always recommend this. Go to the Sky Live or theskylive.com, skylive.com. That's amazing website because you'll get to see so much information that we talk about here. Obviously, our podcast, which we have not only the areas of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, but if people you know roll through there, we have many, many interviews, too, about what I believe very strongly from my time in the military and also serving in the law enforcement role. Many people don't know that. But we talk about American exceptionalism, as John and Rita do, and so many of the great hosts here on this particular radio station do. So it's kind of a mixed bag. People tell me that they enjoy it. But don't forget, and wrapping it up quickly, we find ourselves with two important eclipses of the sun coming up for North America. Saturday, October the 14th, there's an annular solar eclipse in the western United States, northwest down through Texas. And then the big one, Frank, maybe you and I need to talk offline sometime and do the big WABC radio one on the total solar eclipse of April 8, 2024. Let's do it. Let's do it. And I was thinking of this. I don't have any permission to do it, but it wouldn't that be a dream. It will come through Texas, and the eclipse that happens October 14th is seen in southern Texas. It crosses the same path that the eclipse will happen, that total one, in April of 2024. But also in downtown Dallas, and of all places that are very auspicious and sad in American history, wouldn't it be amazing to be on the rooftop of the Texas School Book Depository? With then for what reason? Because of the significance and sacredness of that event, seeing the daytime turn to darkness only adds more to the whole experience. So who knows? Dallas could be a good area, Waco, mm. Texas. But we have a lot of planning to do if we're going to do it, because most places, I think, are sold out for the last hundred years, I think. Just kidding. Really? Well, that's interesting. Oh, no, it's amazing. Well, my sister-in-law, Kat, uh, her parents, who listen to this program regularly and are quite fond of you, they oh, live in you. Texas. So maybe they can uh, they can provide some guidance in terms of an inside track of somewhere we can do something. I'm not sure exactly which part of Texas they're Wouldn't in. Wouldn't that be amazing, Frank? I mean, that's the last one until 20, 2045 for us here in the States. But if you miss those... Real quickly, there's going to be an eclipse in Egypt, which takes place in Luxor in 2027. Now, could you imagine being there with all those amazing monuments that the Egyptians built to the sky gods? This would be even more amazing. So they, we just had one on, on April 20th. That was in Australia. But for us here, it's going to be called again the Great American Total Solar Eclipse. The last one we saw, we were in Rexburg, Idaho, and people can go to our YouTube location for just Dr. Sky Eclipse. You'll see the one from Idaho, and in case you've never seen the total solar eclipse, we have kind of an interesting uh, story there video-wise to show you. Steve, we're going to have to end it there. The hour always flies by whenever we are together. Thank you very much, my friend. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Do check out the Dr. Sky Experience. Go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. For those of you that didn't get your questions in this hour, uh, try again in two weeks. All right. In the words of Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars.